I want to go ahead and invite you guys to turn over to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 is the section of this letter that we have come to. And it is a section that starts out with a really clear, really stark command that we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning trying to understand and press in. The command is this, do not love the world or the things in the world. I wonder what you think when you hear that command. One of the downsides, I guess, of the the way that uh, preaching works I think it's important. It's very intentional the way that, that this part of our service goes. But one of the downsides is that we don't have the freedom really to do a word association game, which is what I'd like to do right now. When you hear, when you hear this passage say, don't love the world, I want to know what you associate with that command. That was rhetorical. Please don't start shouting out at me. I wonder if one of the things you might think is some of the, some of the trends in Christian history, for example, to a kind of withdrawal from the world. Think of medieval monks who lived in these bare stone cells, huddled over desks with ancient manuscripts in front of them, low candlelight, all that they had to, to, to see their way as they poured over these texts for hours on end, fasting, abstaining from sex and marriage, spending hours in silence, no music but what they could chant without accompaniment. Maybe you think of those guys. Maybe like two of you thought of those guys. Let's be honest. I think sometimes, sometimes my mind goes quickly to my teenage years. I was a Christian as a teenager by God's grace. And the faithfulness of my parents and church friends that taught me the gospel. But I, I spent many years during that phase of my life uh, caught up in a Christian subculture that was often defined by, I think I define myself by what I didn't do, didn't believe, didn't associate with, the kind of things I didn't say, the kinds of things I didn't watch or drink or listen to. In that subculture, we had our own versions of the things of this world, our own music, our own films, our own pre-ironic t-shirts, believe it or not. I call them pre-ironic because I don't think we knew how ironic some of these things were. But you know the t-shirts, like, looks like the Crest logo, but it says Christ instead of Crest. Or like the Coca-Cola logo that says Jesus and has satisfies under it. We would take our mottos from the world and make them our own. And in doing that, I mean, I kind of laugh and it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and it was all well-intentioned. But I think underneath it, at least in my heart, I can't speak for where anybody else was in my friend groups at the time, but I think at least in my own heart, what I didn't recognize then and that I think I do recognize now by God's grace is that I was defining faithful Christianity based on what I rejected. And with verses like this one that I just read for you, 1 John two fifteen. You could see where I might have been coming from. And maybe you, you've come here this morning knowing that the Bible says things like this, don't love the world, and believing that Christianity, genuine Christianity, is not defined, is not defined by any positive message, but only by a negative one. That you'll know us by what we reject. If that's what you think when you hear commands like do not love the world or the things in the world, then what I'm hoping to accomplish this morning, what I'm hoping we can do together by looking closely at John's message, 
by trying to understand on its terms and its context. What I'm hoping for is that you'll see this is very much about what genuine Christianity is. That is what it's trying to tell us. But what John wants us to see here, what God through his word, through John wants us to see is that the real thing, genuine Christianity, is not defined by what Christians reject, but by what Christians love. Not by what they reject, but by what they love. I want to I make this case, uh, beginning with making it as clear as I possibly can, what John means by, what, by, by love for the world. So the first thing I want to do is read the text, and then I want to just make sure that the terms are clear, and then we'll get into the details of this passage, how John makes the case that he does, and what it would look like for us to embrace what he has to say to us this morning. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read these three verses. This is a tradition that we have in our church as a way of honoring his word with our bodies. This is the word of the Lord to us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think before we get any further at all, we need to make sure we know what it means to love the world, at least what John means by it. Because again, I do believe many of us misunderstand it. We bring associations to it that are more about us than about what's actually in the text and how John uses this word. And because we bring to this text what we think it means to love the world, sometimes if you know enough, you can know enough about the Bible to be dangerous, you, you can think that what we have here is, is, is a direct contradiction to one of the most famous passages in the Bible. In John chapter 3, verse 16, John's gospel, we're told that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. And maybe you know enough about the Bible to know that God's love for us is our model for how we're supposed to love each other. So if John 3, 16 tells us God loves the world, then how do we square that with John 1 John 2, telling us you're not supposed to love the world. Aren't we supposed to love what God loves? There there can be a kind of surface level uh, conflict here between these two teachings. What we have here is not a contradiction. It's It's just a product of context. And how different words can mean different things for different authors at different places. And we just want to make sure we understand John in his terms. And here's what I want you to see about what John is, how John uses this phrase here. In John's letters... Though the world can often mean something very neutral in the, in the New Testament, it almost always means something very negative for John. So elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, sometimes the phrase the world is used a lot like we, we would use it. Like, what's going on in your world? Just means your environment, your life, what, your, your, your sort of new you, if you will. Sometimes it means just simply the material world, everything that's created around you. We, think, we, we often use it that way. When we talk about the world, we think about you know, where we live. We think about plants and trees and flowers. We think about sunsets and sunrises. We think about the beautiful things that surround us. Sometimes the Bible uses it that way. 
But John uses this phrase in a very distinctive and very clearly negative way here and and in many other places in his writings. What John means by the word, by the world, by that phrase, is a kind of orientation against God, a spirit of opposition to him. So we're not talking about the things that are made, material things as opposed to spiritual things. And we're not even really talking about people as people. We're talking about an organized opposition to who God is, to him having a role in this life that we're living. The world is where the evil one has his way. It's where power matters more than anything else. It's where self-interest guides us. It's where good things given to us are turned into gods rather than gifts of the one true God. In other words, when you hear John refer to the world, think, think of, this, of a sphere of life where God is not. A way of living, an orientation of being in the world that excludes him. An alternative kingdom, if you will, where he isn't welcome he isn't trusted or loved. That's what the world means. And so to love the world, as John says we're not to do here, would be to join the world in that opposition, in that exclusion of God from life. It doesn't mean that we're not to love people. It doesn't mean that we're not to love material things that God has created and given to us to enjoy. Love for the world, as John uses it, means joining the world in its exclusion of God. And what I hope will be clear as we get into the details of this text is that, friends, you could love the world and not realize it. You could be excluding God and not realize it. Most of this text is meant to help us see why it's wrong to love the world. And we're going to spend most of our time on that point here this morning. Why, according to John, it's wrong to love the world. Hopefully just by defining what he means by the world, you you started to see an answer start to play out to why it's such a big deal that Christians not love the world. I want to make sure, though, that the, the way John makes his point comes out for you here. It's really clearly laid out in these verses. You've got that command that I mentioned. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's, that's the top of the, of the passage. The first thing out of, uh, out of verse 15. Everything else from the second part of verse 15 all the way through verse 17 is supporting that command. It's meant to tell you why that command is so important. And what we get from John here are two reasons that it's wrong to love the world. Two things you need to know about that make love for the world so dangerous. The first one comes out in verse 15, and the second one comes out in verse 17. The first one is that love for the world excludes the Father. I've already said this. I want to make sure you understand how that works. And the second one is that it's also harmful for you. If you love the world in the way John's talking about, you're excluding the Father. And you're also harming yourself. I'm going to make sure these two things comes out, come out clearly through the way that John makes his point. First, why it's wrong to love the world? Well, because it excludes, it excludes the Father. Love for the world only works if you push him out of it. If you don't love him. John's really clear on this through his letter. That, 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 that it is incompatible to love the world and love the Father. At the same time, you can't do it. Love for one is always going to rise alongside opposition to the other. Always. To love one is to hate the other. It's either or. 
Look at verse 15. If anyone loves a father, the love of, uh, loves the world, rather, the love of the father is not in him. Black and white. Think of it as like, maybe this analogy is not going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. The, if you've got a glass full of water and you drop rocks in there, like, like, that water is going to get displaced, right? If you've got a full glass of water, you drop rocks in there, those rocks are going to take up space that that water would have taken. It's going to force that water out. You keep filling rocks into that glass of water, that water is going to keep pouring out. It's either or. They can't both coexist at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. Then love for the Father is the same way. You can't love the Father while dropping the rocks of love for the world into the container that is your heart. It's going to force it out. They can't coexist. Why? I don't think that immediately makes sense to us. I think John knows that. I think John points us in verse 16 to why these two things just can't go together. Why love for the world excludes the Father. Verse 16 is a huge help to us to understand this. So he said in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. In verse 16 he says, for, okay, now he's going to explain it. He's going to explain why that's true. Here's what you need to know. To know that love for the Father and love for the world are mutually exclusive, incompatible loves. Here's why. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The middle of that verse is the key. We need to know, once we know what's in the world, we'll know why you can't love it and love him at the same time. So what's in the world? Well, he says that the, uh, the desires of the flesh are in the world. Then he says the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And these categories are really, really, really important. The desires of the flesh, think of that as a, as a big blanket statement. This is human loves over against God, over against his authority. And then desires of the eyes and pride of life break that down. Here's what they might look like. So that's what I want to talk about. These are so important. I didn't realize what these phrases meant before doing some background reading into these phrases uh, earlier this week. I think, it's, I think you'll start to see, once you understand what these phrases mean, you'll see why love for the world always excludes love for the Father, why they can't go together. Here's what you need to know about desires of the eyes and about pride of life. These are the things that are in the world. These are the reason that love for the Father can't coexist with love for the world. What are these desires of the eyes? And what, are, what is this pride of life? And why is it that they exclude love for the Father? Here's what you need to know. We'll start with the desire of the eyes. Maybe your translation says lust of the eyes. Some of the background reading I did helped me to see that, that this phrase is a kind of shorthand, almost a euphemism for covetousness or greed. Desire the eyes, and you can start to see how that makes sense. It's what you see around you but don't have yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing and I'm wanting, but I'm not having. It's covetousness, a longing for what's not mine. Maybe it's for something other people have. Maybe it's something I've dreamed of or been working toward but haven't reached yet. One way or another, it's a longing for something God hasn't given. And that, friends, is why lust of the eyes belongs in the world. Because it's an object on which I've set my heart independent of God. It's not necessarily there's anything wrong with what's desired. Sometimes we see that phrase, lust of the eyes, and maybe we're thinking like a lust for things that are dirty, tainted, unworthy. That's not really what that means. 
the things we may want may be fine in and of themselves. What turns them into the lust of the eyes that belongs in the world, in that sphere that is opposed to and excluding God, is that I have set my heart on something he hasn't given me. And that means I've set my heart on something that is cut off from him. Something in which he doesn't even factor. What happens when I set my heart on things I don't have yet, independent of him, is that I make my desires the standard of what's good and right and best for my life. I become God rather than trusting him. Maybe you're thinking, what, so I can't be interested in anything I don't have yet? No, no, we don't want to overextend what this means. We're not talking about just being interested in something. We're talking about lust for something. We're talking about a compelling desire that has captured your heart. We're talking about a craving. We're talking about, as one, as one writer put it, a desire that's morphed into a demand. I was reading this passage from this book with some friends earlier this week. It's a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by a guy named Paul Tripp. And I love how he describes the way this works. This, this resonates so much with my experience. I wonder if it will with yours. This is, how, this is how Tripp describes this pathway from something that's maybe just a desire, an interest, something we would like to have that turns into a demand, a lust of the eyes. Listen to what Tripp says. He says, demand is the closing of my fists over a desire. Even though I may be unaware that I've done it, when that happens, when I've closed my fist over a desire, even though I may be unaware that I've done it, he writes, I've left my proper position of submission to God. I've decided that I must have what I set my heart on and nothing can stand in the way. And what that means, Tripp says, is that I am no longer comforted by God's desire for me. I'm threatened by it. Because God's will potentially stands in the way of my demand. I can no longer conceive of a good life without this thing. So now God's desires, independent of my own, threaten me. Maybe he doesn't want this for me. But I have to have this. So, so maybe he's a threat. Because what Tripp is talking about here is I think what John is getting at. And how the lust of the eyes it belongs in the world. It belongs in this sphere in which God is not. It's a, it's a closing of my fist over a desire that doesn't take God into account. That leads either to disappointment in him because he hasn't given it to me or fear or hatred of him because he might not give it to me, might not want it for me, might stand in my way. Either way, God's been excluded. When we give our hearts to what we see but don't have, God is either a disappointment to us or a threat. And either way, he's been excluded from what I love. That's why the lust of the eyes, covetousness, desire for what we don't have yet belongs in the world. It's wrong because it excludes our father. Pride of life does the same thing, but in another way. 
So John has packaged them together for us. He wants us to see how both of them are dangerous. Both of them mean for us that love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. We've seen a little bit about what he means by desire of the eyes. The next phrase that he gives us as part of this package is is the pride of life. my, My translation has a little footnote by life. Drop down and it says you could also translate it pride of possessions. Maybe yours actually says that. Uh, that's, th- this word is, is a word that gets used in a lot of different ways. Life is like the most literal translation, but it's often used for goods or livelihood or possessions, your stuff, what you have. So if, if desire of the eyes, lust of the eyes, is excluding the Father by loving what he hasn't given, the pride of life is a love for what you have that excludes him by treating it as if it's yours. As if you're the reason you have it. As if you're the main decider about what it's good for and how, to, how it should be used. As if it says something about you rather than about God and his goodness. So if desires of the eyes is coveting what you don't have, pride of life is a corrupted, excessive, self-serving love for what you do have. We're guilty of it, friends, whenever we reflect on, our, on what we have in our lives, whatever that might be, as symbols, signals of, of our greatness, of our good tastes or accomplishments or whatever else. But the bottom line is it's just considering what we have apart from God. As if we're the source and the decider about what to do with these good things. You can see, can't you, how this belongs with the world as we've defined it? It's not the things themselves that are the problem. It's not that automatically loving some possession that you, that you own means you love the world. There's nothing anything wrong with a personal resume of accomplishments, things that you've acquired on their own. They're not the problem. The problem is when you feel pride in them. When you feel pride in them, when you use them as a way to signal your greatness to the world, when you set your heart on them in a way that hugs them close as your own to be, that's territorial and turfy about them and how you use them, what they're for, what you've done is taking credit from something that only comes from God. You've walled off a role for the Father in what you have. You love these things in themselves. The only way to take pride in what you have is to exclude Him, to treat Him as if He doesn't exist. It's the only way it works. So what John is telling us is that you can't love stuff like this it's not that you can't love stuff. It's that you can't love stuff like this, in this way, in this manner, and love the Father at the same time. You can't love Him, be drawn to Him, have affection for Him, and then treat what you have in your life as if it's yours. It's unjust and insulting and ungrateful, and the Bible is clear, it's offensive to Him. And that's the main problem with loving the world. That's the main burden of these three verses is to convince you of it. The main problem is that it excludes the Father who is the source of every good thing in this world, every good thing that's ever come to any one of our lives and who's worthy of our trust and our dependence and our joy in Him and what He's given. 
You can't love the world and love the Father because you can't love excluding him and having him at the same time. That's the first and the biggest problem with loving the world. That's why it's wrong to love the world. But before we move on, I want to make sure you see the second problem that John highlights for us. He said, don't love the world or the things in the world. He spends verse 15 and 16 telling us why it's wrong to love the world. But then verse 17 adds another layer. All in the world, he says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. I think what he wants you to see is that not only is this excluding the Father when we love the world, but we're setting ourselves up for broken hearts. We shouldn't do it because it excludes the Father, but we also shouldn't do it because it's harmful for us to love the world like this. The world and its desires are passing away. That means, friends, that you set your heart on anything in this world apart from God, loved on its own, apart from Him as the giver. And you've set your heart on something that you are going to lose. And there's nothing you can do that'll change it. There's nothing you can do to protect yourself from it. And what will happen every single time is that you will get your heart broken. That's what John and so many other biblical writers want to protect you from. Let me give you a really mundane example of it. Just came up across my, my own purview this week, if you will. Somehow I stumbled across some... Uh, some old photos. I was looking for something else and I just stumbled across them and I couldn't help flipping through a few of them. These were probably from circa 1999, maybe 2001. <clears throat> and I saw myself in clothes that I thought looked good at that time. <laughs> and you don't unsee that. <laughs> I... Uh, Let's just just put it this way. Whatever time and energy and money I spent trying to look good has really just bought me embarrassment now. (laughs) And the hope that my children in the era of social media never find the photos I stumbled across this week. I mean, it's not so much that the patterns were outlandish or what have you. I mean, basically dressed the same way as long as I can remember. It's like the cuts and the sizing. It's like I was wearing something like two sizes too big. Late 99, you guys remember this? You could, these things would double as like paragliding equipment if you needed them. These shirts that people wore in the, in the shorts. It's ridiculous. Like back then, like everybody was doing it, I guess. But now I look at it and I'm embarrassed by it. And that's only less than 20 years. That's what 20 years has done to something I maybe set my heart on back then. And identified myself with apart from God. Now zoom that out even further. Zoom it out a couple hundred years. And you think about the clothes that we spend time and energy and money on as moth food. Right? It feeding another generation of wonderful moths. And think about what that perspective would do to how we set our hearts on clothes now. If we had that perspective, what it would do. Think about it. I mean, it's surprising, isn't it, how often, how much territory in our hearts our clothes can mark off as their own. What we love and crave and pursue in this world. Maybe it's so silly because it's clothes. We think it's so mundane and so silly that it's beneath what could matter to God. 
And for that reason, we're, we're tempted to pursue what we wear independently of him as if he's not implicated in what it costs us or in the effect what we wear has on people who look at us or how much time we spend looking and wanting and acquiring or how much our happiness rises and falls with each purchase. Now zoom out. We think of God as, 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 as not really caring about this stuff. We can pursue these things independently of him. If we do that, zoom out a couple hundred years to when it's not just embarrassment at seeing an old picture of clothes you wore 20 years ago, but the, the, the thought that the thing you want so badly now feeds moths in 200 years. Think about, think about it from that perspective. What we're wearing now is moth food, plain and simple. Think about how we think and talk about the moth food we're wearing right now. How ridiculous it would sound if we replace whatever it is with moth food. Look how cute her moth food is. I wish I had his taste in moth food. Can you imagine having the freedom to buy new moth food anytime I want it? That moth food over there in that store may be more expensive, but it, you know, it's, it's so much higher quality. And it's so unique. And I don't want to be wearing the same moth food as everybody else. I want my moth food to make a statement about me, something unique. Take an even more present example. This week, the stock market had a rough week, didn't it? I was at my Cub Scout meeting on Monday night, talking to one of the other Cub Scout dads who happens to work at Owen Business School over here and pays attention to these things. And uh, he was telling us all how he had sort of gamed the system because he could tell back on Friday when the things first started to take a turn that it, it was going to get worse and worse and worse. And so he liquidated most of his investments into cash. He's going to wait on things to equalize and then he's going to get back in. I thought, dude, would it have killed you to send a group text? <laughs> and then I realized well, I actually don't have anything I could have liquidated. I could have, whatever. <laughs> the point is this guy had good sense. He could see what would happen and he invested accordingly. What fool, what fool, knowing the market would dive, invests more the day before? Nobody. What we know, if we have the clarity to see it, friends, is that this world and its desires, everything independent of God, is passing away. That market is crashing, and it will not bounce back. What fool invests in a market that's obviously going to tank? John wants to protect you from a broken heart, from a wasted life. So he warns you, do not love the world or the things in the world, not just because he wants to rob you of fun. He doesn't. Because he wants to rob you of pain, of loss, of an empty and wasted life. Don't love the world. These things are passing away. Anything loved apart from God is done for already. That's why it's wrong to love the world. And that's the main burden of this text, to be honest. I mean, it is mostly a text arguing against a way of relating to the things around you. But I don't want to end there. I don't want to end there because John doesn't, actually. Most, so we've only looked at three verses, and 
I don't break this down as a percentage of word count or anything, but I'm going to put it at at 90% of this passage is talking about what not to do. But did you notice at the end of verse 17, John takes a turn and actually tells us what we should do. He draws a contrast to us between the world and all of its desires. And we know now what he means. It's things loved independently of God as if God is not a factor, as if he is not a giver and a ruler of everything that we have access to around us. Loving things independently of God is what he means by the world. So he's saying that world, its desires, everything independent of God is passing away. But, a key contrast, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Doesn't pass away. Doesn't have their heart broken. What does he mean? I want to I finish up this morning by, by just a couple of thoughts to stir your thinking and your conversations with each other about it, what it looks like to love the Father in the world. So for now, we live in the world. Surrounded by people and things that can be viewed independent of God. Bombarded by messages that encourage us to view things around us independently of God. And living with hearts, I'm talking now to you if you're a Christian this morning, living with hearts that are divided between love for God and love for the world for now. So what does it look like for us to live and engage with the things around us And not engage them in the world. Not love them in the world. But to love the Father while we're in the world. While we engage with the things he's put around us. While we sift through truth and and lie in the messages we we are bombarded with about what's around us. I want to finish with just some thoughts. I think this is going to be, I think this is is a, a path of wisdom that's best walked with your friends. Knowing whether or not what you love now is loved in the world or loved in the Father is not going to be clear to you, necessarily. That's why you need friends that you trust to speak truth in your life, that you have conversations like this about, uh, with. And, and I want to encourage you to do that as quickly as you can, even in your small groups this week. I want to just prime those conversations with a couple things from the end of verse 17 here. One of the reasons I want, to, I want to spend a few minutes here is that I think that when we hear a, ver, a phrase like, uh, whoever does the will of God abides forever, sometimes some of us are going to import a lot of stuff into that phrase that doesn't belong there. We might think, well, that means unless I obey God perfectly, I won't have eternal life. Um, that, that, that for me to live with God forever, for me to be worthy of that, I have to prove myself. Um, and, and that's just antithetical to the Christian gospel, friends. If that's what you think when you hear this phrase, we need to talk about it because we need to make sure it's clear to us why that isn't what John means. I mean, John earlier in this, own, in this very letter, just earlier in this very chapter, has reminded us that, that when we sin because we will, we have an advocate with the Father, someone who stands for us, someone whose blood cleanses us from all sin, someone who died so that God's wrath against our sin could be absorbed by someone, not us. The only way anyone is worthy of a relationship with God that lasts forever is because Jesus came and lived the life we were meant to, died the death we were meant to, and lives again now 
because he has perfectly absorbed everything, every penalty that our sin imposes. If you want to know what it takes to be at peace with God and to have hope of heaven, this is what it takes. This is the will of God for you. Believe in the one whom he sent. Trust that Jesus has earned your forgiveness because you never will. So what does John say when he says, he who does the will of God abides forever? I think we need to remember who we're dealing with here. This is John. John writes about these things in a little bit different style than, than other New Testament writers like Paul. And sometimes John just uses things as synonymous phrases like doing the will of God and loving God and knowing God and believing in God can all be interchangeable for John. Uh, a little bit later on in, in chapter 5, he, John, uh, John says that, uh, i read from verse 3 of chapter 5, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So he draws this equivalency between loving him and obeying him. In other places, he draws the same equivalency between knowing him, having a personal relationship with him, and obeying him. It's just sort of a summary way of re- ref- uh, that he uses to refer to someone who's at peace with God. He's not explaining how it happens. He's explaining what it looks like when it's happened. When you have peace with God, when you actually know him, which we know only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, this is what it looks like. It looks like loving him. It looks like obeying him. You pick, a, pick a reference and plug it in. That, that's how John operates. So when we see him say that, that the one who, who does the will of God abides forever, think of this person as the one who is reconciled to God through Jesus, who is trusting in Jesus' blood for his forgiveness, and who is loving God in a way that wants what God wants, that loves what God loves, that brings God into his view of everything else. That's who John's talking about here. Now, if that, how, how can we understand what it looks like for that person to relate to the things that are in the world in a way that loves the Father, most of all. That loves the Father through the things of the world. I want to bring out two things that I think John is pointing us to in this phrase. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think he means a couple of things when he says will of God here. I think the first thing that's built in here, the first encouragement to us if we want to love the Father in the world is an encouragement to obedience. And here's what I mean. Not simple, just like hunker down, white knuckle, obey the law. It's actually, it's actually much more beautiful than that image. Think of this. The world that God made, it's full of wonderful things, right? All of us know that. And these are things that he made to be wonderful. He made the world full of wonderful things because he wants us to have joy and he wants us to experience his goodness. So by all means, enjoy what you can in the world. But obedience is trusting his will for what he's given. Obedience trusts God to know what's best in the use of God's gifts. It doesn't take the gifts and run. As if now that I've got them, I'm the best decider for what's, for what's good in them. As if I'm in this godlike position to decide how they ought to be used. Obedience is trusting his will is best for me as I enjoy the opportunities God's put in me and around me. 
So when we love the gifts and God is only a means to those gifts, then we'll see the rules of the scripture. Places where God says this and not that. We're going to see those as, as strings attached on what we really wanted or a straitjacket that holds us back from what's really good for us rather than seeing those rules as, something that, as things that come from God's love instead of seeing them as good for us because they come from a, the same Father who gave us good gifts in the first place. We'll see them as threats to our enjoyment of what we want. Either way, God's just going to be a means or he's going to be a threat, but he himself is not going to be what we're after. We won't be loving him through those things that he's given. But if we love God, not just what he gives us, but love him in and through what he gives us, then we'll embrace what he tells us about what he's given us. We will accept what he's told us about how to enjoy what he's given us. That won't mean saying no to sex, but saying no to sex on my terms. It won't mean saying no to money. It'll be saying, mean saying no to money on my terms. It won't mean saying no to fun or entertainment, but it will mean saying no to entertainment that exploits others or leisure that causes me to neglect my responsibilities. The way to love the Father in the midst of the gifts that he surrounded us with, the good things that even though temporary are from him and for us, the way to love him is to trust him enough to obey him. That's one thing to chew on this week and to talk to your friends about. Here's one more. I'm going to end here. What does it look like to love God through the things that he's put around us and in us, the opportunities, the goodness of this created world? How do we love him in the midst of it? Another, another trait, another mark of it we pray towards is contentment. So obedience first, but then, then contentment. So think about God's will here, not just as his will of command, do this, not that. That's important. We've just talked about it. There's another side to his will in the Bible, though, and that is his will of what is. What is, is because God in his providence has willed it. And the one who embraces his will abides forever. Think about contentment as joy in what you have. It's not about asceticism. It's not about uh, denial. Contentment looks like gratitude. It's not saying no to the goodness of the world. It's about saying thank you for the goodness of the world that I get to enjoy. It's about bringing God into the center of my life. So, so I trust that his will is good for me. That it's his will that has given. It is his will that takes away and guides and I know that I can trust him because he's a loving father. He's not some ambiguous dispenser of gifts that I've got to manipulate somehow. He's a father who knows me, who knows what I need, who knows how to get me to heaven. And when you trust him like a loving father, you get to find a deeper and a truer and a more lasting joy in what he brings into your life. Yeah, loving, loving what's passing away as a means to an end as an extension of the goodness and love of joy that comes from God is the only way to love what's passing away and not have your heart broken. 
to see it as just something on the way towards what's coming, not a thing in itself to be held onto and clung to at all costs. Let me give you another example of this. We're talking about how to love the good things that God has filled this world with without putting our hearts on them in a way that excludes him. That this looks like contentment, gratitude for what he's given. Sometimes my children give me very interesting gifts. Um, We'll say off list, but very interesting. Uh, Like, for example, the year that they gave me some shark socks for Father's Day. They are exactly what they sound like, like. Socks with lots and lots of sharks on them. Uh, or the, the, the year that I got the Star Wars t-shirt with the original cast from New Hope era like poster on a t-shirt, like full torso. Um, if I had taken those gifts that my children chose to give me and I'd, and I'd exchanged them, taken them back to the store to get one, ones that, that, let's say, better conform to my desired image or experience. What would that say about the gift and my posture toward it? Wouldn't that say that, that the gift mattered more to me than the giver? That the giver in that situation was just a means to an end? Well, what I really wanted was this thing over here, so if I don't get it... I don't get what I really want. I've got to figure out a way to change what I have been given. I've got I to gotta exchange it. That's what I want over there. Wouldn't it say that I love the gift independent of the giver? That I've excluded the giver from what I love? I love those gifts that they give me, not because not I picked them out of a lineup off the rack, but because they were picked for me by people that I love. I love them by extension. The gifts I love by extension. I love them for what they say about the giver. I love them for the way they connect me to the giver and the giver's loves. I love them, in other words, as a product of my relationship with the giver. Not as ends in themselves. Now, I get it, friends. That is not a perfect analogy. For a lot of reasons, that is not a perfect analogy. I, but, but there is some truth in it. Sometimes what God gives us in the world is not what we would have chosen for ourselves. Sometimes there are other things on the rack that we would like. Other presents given to other people we wish had been given to us. Sometimes we might be tempted to swap But if we remember who has given these things to us, if we remember not only our affection for him and his affection for us, but that he has shown himself to us as a father who knows and loves and wants our good, then these gifts, they become opportunities to fuel our relationship with him. Love for what they are, not notice for what they aren't. Embraced because they are an extension of him into our life for our good. What it is to love the Father is, is not to reject the good things that he's filled this world with. It's to reject any experience of those things, any love for those things, any attraction to those things that doesn't include him.
that doesn't have him at the center and at the end as the goal of all of it. So do not love the world or the things in the world. It's all passing away. But the one who embraces God's will abides forever. Father, we want this longevity, but not just longevity. We want this peace, this joy, this true life that you've held out to us in your word. So protect our hearts from their attachment to all sorts of things that exclude you and break us. In your position, were we in your position, we would not be so patient or so kind towards people who have loved other things so often and treated you like nothing. And we pray to you now that you would help us to love you, not because we think we deserve it, but because we don't have anyone else to ask. We can't go anywhere else. We are in the humbling position of depending on the God we've excluded as our only hope for life. But here we are. Thank you, Father, for loving us so well in Jesus. And now we pray that you keep on doing this work so that our hearts love what you do. For his sake, in Jesus' name, amen.